strange writing on this clay brick is known as cuneiform. Now, this script was used for hundreds of years in ancient history. Here, international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Patmos to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. Well, Pompeii. Anybody been to Pompeii? I think I saw a few hands before. All right, so we're going to go there in our second session. Pompeii was quite a large city for ancient times. It was a city for the uh, for the holidaying uh, people of ancient Rome, in a sense. It was a city given to pleasure uh, for wealthy people and so on, and uh, sort of like a Las Vegas, I guess you'd say, in some respects. There were large homes in this city. Some of them had piped water as well. On top of that, you could come to the Forum, the business district of, uh, of the city of Pompeii, and go about your activity. You may want to come down here to the wool merchant's and buy some yarn to make some cloth for your family, ladies. Maybe you want to come here to the bakery shop to buy the bread for the family, or perhaps you want to have food on the run. They had Maccas in Pompeii, well, sort of, you know. Lots of these sort of corner shops where they fed people throughout the city of Pompeii. Then you may want to relax in the afternoon by watching some of your live drama, some of your favourite actors as they performed. If you were more sporty, you may want to come here to the sports arena and watch the gladiators kill each other. That's the way, as we mentioned in the last sessions, the Romans had themselves entertained by watching other people fight each other and, uh, and so on. Uh, for other people in the night, you may want to come to the bathhouse and relax after your busy day shopping and outing throughout the city. Amazing bars the Romans had for their citizens to be able to relax in. Other people had other things to do in Pompeii. You can visit the brothels in this place. In fact, there are some scenes on the walls of some of the homes and buildings in Pompeii that we could never show in a program like this. We would rate them uh, you know, quite pornographic. Some of the visual imagery that you can see in the Naples Museum and so on. Somebody had scrawled a message on one of the walls inside one of the buildings of Pompeii, Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, scholars, I was just reading an article, believe it's quite clear that Jewish people lived in Pompeii because that's a story from the Jewish Bible, the story of the fall of the cities, the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Pompeii also had its religion. There were temples you could visit, I guess in a sense people wanted to keep their conscience reasonably okay, so you had to have some religion to go along with it, but not too much, it might spoil your fun. But let me assure you, people didn't have their fun spoiled by religion. In the ancient world, in many cultures, there were temple prostitutes, both male and female, that were part of the temple services in the ancient world. But always in the background of Mount of Naples, of sorry, of Pompeii, uh, was this volcano, a sleeping volcano at this time in history. It had been dormant for about 700 years, but suddenly in AD 64, Mount Vesuvius rumbled and came to life. It caused an earthquake that destroyed much of the city of Pompeii. But the people built up what they could and were 
rebuilding the city and carrying on life as usual as time went on. In AD 79, Mount Vesuvius rumbled yet again. But the people continued business as usual, failing to heed significantly the warning signs. And they carried on their pursuits, their pleasure and their their enjoyment, their business. When suddenly on August the 24, AD 79, Mount Vesuvius blew its top and it rained red-hot pumice on the city of Pompeii for three days and it completely buried the city. And archaeologists have been excavating this city for well over 100, nearly 200 years now, excavating this place. They found the last tragic moments of a city that failed to heed the warning signs. Warning signs that were not taken notice of too seriously by many of the people and many perished in Pompeii as a result. Now you recall from our last session that 2,000 years ago, not long before the destruction of Jerusalem and of Pompeii, Jesus the Christ gave those warning indicators of what would take place in the fall of Jerusalem. Remember we talked about the destruction of Jerusalem, what would happen to the temple and its people. All of those things were predicted and fulfilled exactly with great precision, yet they were predicted before those events took place. Now, the, the discussion wasn't finished. The disciples had asked a double-pronged question. Tell us, when shall these things be? When is Jerusalem going to have this catastrophe where there's not one stone upon another? And they asked, what will be the sign of your coming or your return and the end of the world? You see, those two things were put together. The end of the world takes place, as we know it, that is, at the return of Jesus the Christ. So they said, when's that going to be? What will be the sign of those things concerning the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans? But what about the end of the world and your coming? What sign will you give us? Jesus then proceeded to talk about the things that would be taking place as the world as we know it comes to an end. He gave very clear signs, just as he'd given signs for the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, one after another, he outlined some significant events that would be taking place. Number one, we'll see in a moment. These events show us that we are on the edge of eternity, in fact, today. There's no question when you have a look at these things that we're going to see. You would think Jesus was reading from the Sydney Morning Herald almost. Notice what he said, first of all, there would be signs in the natural world, the world of nature. He talked about earthquakes. Jesus predicted there will be earthquakes in various places. Now, you think of some of the horrific earthquakes we've had in just the last few years. Tibet last year, Japan 2011, Christchurch just a little bit before that. I was in Christchurch running this series same series of programs, a city that has had the heart of it ripped out. It's quite tragic to see what took place, but those people are amazingly resilient. Haiti, where over 200,000 people were killed in that earthquake that took place then. Earthquakes today actually are on the increase. There is no question about that when you look at the records. The first 10 years of the 20th century, there were 18 recorded quakes that were over six on the Richter scale. 
The last 10 years in the 20th century, last century, there were 42 recorded quakes over six. Now what about now? In the first 10 years of this century, the 21st century, there have been 217 earthquakes, not over six, but over seven. Six is, they're getting more powerful, in fact, than they were before. And Jesus also predicted famines would be taking place as we near the end of time. There will be famines, he said. Now, you think about the tragic statistics that we see in the world today in the area of famine. Do you know that about 24,000 children die from die daily from hunger, over 24,000? That's one every 3.6 seconds. Another has died. Now another one has died. It's a tragic thing when you stop and think about it. Little lives dying from starvation. You know, 500 million people tonight... Well, we've had three good meals today, and probably some of us have had more than three meals. 500 million plus people will die, will be, will be battling for one meal, desperate for one meal for the day. 924 million people on our planet go to bed hungry every night. That's nearly a billion, one seventh of the world's population. We are the lucky ones. I was in Papua New Guinea running the same series just two weeks ago. I said to the people, you may not realise it, but you are the lucky people on this planet. I have travelled to India and other places where on the train station there is your toilet, there is your kitchen, there is your lounge room. That's it with your whole family. It's tragic to think of what's taking place around our world. Jesus could see so clearly into the future and he got it right. You know, Jesus also predicted things like tsunamis and cyclones and floods, and haven't we been having a lot of those things of recent times? He predicted there will be distress of nations with perplexity. We don't know what to do, so to speak. Sort of like a cardiac global cardiac arrest or something. People worried. The sea and the waves roaring. Now, you can see very clearly he's talking about such things that will take place in the waters, the oceans and the rivers, the flooding that will take place. And we've seen horrific things in the last few years. Of course, the Asian tsunami, the Southern Asian tsunami, over 200,000 people killed by this earthquake and the tsunami, of course, that followed it. Jesus mentioned that nations would be anxious about such terrifying events, and they are. Listen, I ran the same series on the Cook Islands in Rarotonga just two years ago, and as you travel around that island of Rarotonga, as you go around the island, you will see tsunami warning signs telling the people where to run in case there's a tsunami. The signs are all around the island. I was on the island uh, in the Kiribati Islands running these programs a couple of years ago too. And I noticed they took me to the highest mountain in the Kiribati. It's three metres above sea level. I would hate to be living on that island when a tsunami came. There are some deep concerns. While I was there, the water washed right over the island. There's concern about the rising of the seas because of global warming and so on. You, you can see it before your, your eyes. Nations are anxious about such events. Jesus predicted with 100% accuracy, as you can see. He talked about signs in the political world. Jesus said, you will hear of wars and rumours of wars. 
Notice these statistics. 30 wars every year on our planet. We don't like each other. (laughs) Wars after wars. Some people on this planet, that is all they have known for years, is war. In fact, $100 million at least are spent on war every hour. By the time you've finished in this program, $200 million has been spent on war in the world today. You know that's 80 times more is spent on war than is needed to provide water and sanitation to this world. We have our priorities all up the chute, as we say, don't we? Completely wrong here. We're spending all this money on war and many of these dollars, it's never going to be used anyway. And we're glad for that, that it's not going to be used in war, but it's there, they're spending it. 27,000 nuclear bombs in stock around the world today, that's enough to do us over many times with all of that stuff. International conflicts, global conflicts, Jesus predicted. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Do you know that in the 1800s, as we near the end of that century, and we move to the 1900s or the 20th century, people said we are now going to be able to have peace in our world, they said. They said we have now become of age, we have the industrial revolution, we have all this technology, man will solve all its problems, there will be no more war. That last century, there was tremendous destruction and John in the Revelation got it right, the nations are angry. Jesus was the one who gave John this message. He told him to write these things down. But you know, last century, 180 million people died from war alone in the century that was supposed to bring us the greatest peace of all the ages. Jesus got it right in a time when people thought wars would end. Nuclear conflict today, many people are worried about this. Nations around the world are anxious if terrorists get their hands on what we call a dirty bomb, a small nuclear device nonetheless, but can do a lot of damage to a lot of people in a city. They are anxious. I've heard them on on radio talking about this problem uh, of nuclear terrorists with nuclear weapons and so on. Israel and Iran, they can't stand each other. Israel has the bomb, Iran wants the bomb. Korea and so on. People are worried as the nuclear club grows larger and larger, slowly, slowly, more nations are starting to get their hands on these things. Jesus talked about signs in the social world, the world of relationships. Notice what he predicted talking about the end times, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Wow, that sort of defines a lot of what's taking place even here in Sydney today, if you think about it. Jesus had a friend called Paul, one of his followers, and he wrote this to a friend, Timothy, 2,000 years ago. You'd think he'd plagiarized the Sydney Morning Herald. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. By the way, I would remind you that the GFC, the Global Financial Crisis of 2008-2009, economists tell us that it was because of human greed, love of money. 
boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Summarizes much of what is happening in the world today, does it not? You think of crime just for one moment. When I was a kid growing up in the city of Perth, we used to sleep outside in the summertime on the back lawn. We'd take all our our, our mattresses out there and we'd sleep outside because it was so hot sometimes. I tell you, I wouldn't do that today if you got any any sense. <laughs> you wouldn't really think of that today. It's too dangerous. It's not smart to do such things today. Sometimes in our world, in our country, there have been 13-year-old kids who rate 80-year-old women. That has happened in our country. Where are we going in the world today when such things are taking place? Some people think, no, it's only in our imagination that things are getting... No, it's not, my friend. You think back of the top problems in the 1940s at schools. Here they are. The top problems, probably not too many of us were there in the 1940s, but here they were. Talking in class, this was a no-no. Number two, chewing gum in the schoolroom and sticking it up under the chair. Making a noise in the schoolrooms. Running in the halls of the school. Cutting in line, not waiting your turn. Not wearing your school uniform. These are serious issues, aren't they? And throwing paper around the place. Now let's just fast forward 60 years, just 60 years to the 2000s. And what have we got now? These are the top problems in many schools today. Drug use by teenage kids. Alcohol abuse. We know it well at the end of the schoolie parties at the end of the year, the problems it causes in society and to the young people tragically. Pregnancy among teenage kids at school. Suicide tragically. Young people taking their own lives at such a young age. Rape by school kids at school as well. Robbery and assault. That's one reason why some of the teachers want out of teaching in some schools. It's a dangerous place. It's not a good place and a good environment for your stress levels and so on. Now, you just think of that. Those were not the problems back in the 1940s. But we have changed and we are moving in a radical way in modern society where violence and these sort of things are on the increase, uh, as we can see. You know, one of the most tragic statistics is this one. Today in Australia, one in six boys and one in four girls will be sexually abused before they get to the age of 18. That's not love in anybody's book. That's what Jesus said. It will be a loveless age. It will be difficult to find genuine concern and love for people. It will be decreasing. He certainly got that right. He also spoke about signs in the religious world. Signs among the religion, uh, religious part, the spiritual aspect of life. Notice what he said. He said, beware of false prophets. You will know them by their fruits. He talked about false Christs or false messiahs will arise in the end of time. We've seen those things. You may remember some of these prophets and messiahs. Jim Jones cult, where over 900 people committed suicide following their leader down in Guyana in 
Then there was David Koresh in Waco, Waco in Texas. 70 lives, over 70 lives destroyed because of this false messiah. There have been different Jewish messiahs that have arisen or false messiahs and so on. Even in Africa, we've had these religious cults and so on. Even today, many terrorists, as we can see with ISIS, a lot of underneath of that, a lot of that is uh, some religious beliefs, some religious beliefs that are not correct. These are extremist Muslims, just like some of these people were extremist Christians or extremist Hindus, which we can have on the planet. False Christ, false messiahs, false prophets. Here's another one. This is interesting now. Please, I'm not uh, debating creation or evolution. I'm not even taking sides on that thing at, at right here now. I'm simply saying there is a disbelief in creation by God, and this is predicted in the writings of Peter 2,000 years ago. How did he know this? Notice what he wrote. He said, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, for this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were evolved. Now I want you to think of that for a moment. Up until the last 200 years, if you trace the history of things, most people on planet Earth, whether you're a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Muslim, or you belong to the Western world, almost everybody believed in some sort of a creator God, but this is not the case today. As I said, not arguing for or against, just simply saying somebody could see something 2,000 years ago which would be taking place toward the end of the world. And we're living in a day where there is certainly not a belief in a creator God. Peter got it right. Amazing to think how he could predict such a thing when, in, when even in more recent times this has only just come in. The spread of the gospel to the world. The gospel means the good news that in a world out of control, there is a God who is in control and there is a God who loves. You remember last night, we saw that amazing image, that statue of Nebuchadnezzar had in his dream, that great Babylonian monarch. You will notice that Daniel was shown exactly what would take place. The take-home message from that is that there is a God and that God is in control. He said, as Daniel talked to the king, he said, kings are removed and kings are set up. But God is in control. He will make sure in the end it all works out in the right way. There will be justice in the end. Now, this is incredible. Daniel was showing that, and now Jesus says that the gospel message, the good news that God does care for this planet, that will spread around the world. Notice what Jesus predicted. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached or proclaimed in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. In fact, it was the last sign that Jesus gave. After that, the end. When the gospel goes to the world, then the end will come. Now, this is an amazing thing that's taking place today. His secular Time magazine wrote an article talking about the spread of Christianity, which, which is where the gospel comes from. Adherence to that faith, meaning Christianity, have more than tripled all across Asia since 1970, jumping from just over 100 million to over 350 million today. That's an enormous growth rate. But not only that in Asia, you can travel to other countries where the spread of the gospel is going like wildfire. You go to South America, to the Philippines, to Africa, one of the most amazing places, but the fastest growing place for the spread of the good news is right in India, a place which for centuries 
had no place for the gospel today. It's the fastest growing place for the gospel message. In India, people by the millions are finding a new way of life, a new hope for the future, a new purpose in life, a new meaning and a peace of mind in that great country of India. So here we have those warning signs that Jesus the Christ gave. He said there would be signs, global warnings in where? First of all, the natural world, the things of nature. He said there'd be signs in the political world, and we're seeing them today, exactly as he predicted. He talked about signs in the social world, the world of relationships, and what a tragedy that those things are being fulfilled before our very eyes, even in our own country and city here. The religious world, many indicators, and we're seeing them. Now, what do they all mean? Well, as he finished his discussion with his followers, this is what he said. He said, now listen, when you see all these things, these signs, know that it, he's referring to his coming, his return, know that it is near, it is even at the doors. He didn't say exactly when it would be. He just said, when you see these things taking place, know that it's near, it's at the doors, it's about to happen. No question about it. Jesus said, it is near even at the doors. Now, what should be our reaction today? Should we sort of be biting our fingernails, getting all stressed? No, that was certainly not the, what Jesus was thinking about. He was rather thinking that it should, th- we should be thinking of the hope that is come, the hope for our lives in what is coming. Now he said, when these things begin to happen, when you see these various events, He said, look up, don't get discouraged, don't get depressed. He said, look up, why? Because your redemption is drawing near, meaning he is coming to set up a new world empire, the last empire that we talked about last evening. Why should we not be depressed? Because in this last empire, as we went through those various metals that Daniel saw and Nebuchadnezzar saw, the last one was the rock that hit the image on the feet, and that was the last empire, God's empire, an empire with no tears, of no pain, of no sorrow, and no death, a world that we desperately need today. With all the tragedies that are taking place, God wants to set up that empire and to bring in a new world of peace and security. So it was on August the 24th, AD 79, that Pompeii arose to a new day of life. The people of Pompeii went down their streets to do their business, to go to their business district, to take off down to the arenas for the sports and down to the theatres to watch the actors. They continued their life. Some, no doubt, came down to the business district here, carrying on their daily living. Others probably came down here to those sports arenas, none of them realising what was about to take place. I guess some of them came to the fortune tellers too, because these people in ancient times, they're psychics, they said they could read the future from the patterns in the dust, the dust patterns in the bowls and the basins. You could sort of tell the future there. But they couldn't even tell what was going to happen in a couple of hours' time. And then it happened. Mount Vesuvius blew its top, and that red-hot pumice began to rain down on the city. You can imagine almost what took place in your imagination as you think what it must have been like. 
Some people tried to get out of the gates of the city to escape the catastrophe that was unfolding before their very eyes. But they couldn't get out. They left it too late and they perished at the gates of Pompeii. The tragedy of not listening to the warning signs. They could have escaped if they'd gone earlier and listen. Some people came down here to get the bread, no doubt. They found the bread 2,000 years later, but the people perished in Pompeii. You can imagine the priests running back into their temple to get some of their sacred religious objects since their statues and so on, but they left it too late. They perished in Pompeii, not heeding the warning signs. Can you believe it? Some people like Pansus running back to their houses for their precious objects of art. But they left it too late and they too perished in Pompeii. The tragedy, you see, of failing to heed the warning signs. And I've walked through that city, you know, you think of the lives of people that could have been saved if they'd only listened and taken heed to those signs. And today we have many signs there given. 2,000 years ago, and in the books of Daniel and the Revelation, as we're going to see amazing things that help us to understand where we are in time. Predictions that we saw today in the natural world from 2,000 years ago being fulfilled before our eyes. The political signs. Signs in the social world, the religious world. I guess the question for you and I tonight is, are we listening? Are we taking it in? Are we thinking or are we just carrying on business as usual like the people of Pompeii? Well, what should we do? What did Jesus suggest his followers should do? Because they were like you and I. They heard these things. So what should they do? Jesus answered their unspoken question here. But watch yourselves, he said, in case your hearts are weighed down with partying and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and he said, that day come on you unexpectedly. In other words, we can be so preoccupied with the activities of this life that we give little attention to the things that really count in life. We can be so occupied with the pleasures of life. We can be so preoccupied with the, the partying that we miss what Jesus is saying is about to happen, and we're taken unawares. And Jesus said, be careful, take heed, watch out. Then he also, as he talked to his followers, he shared with them how we can actually be in the last empire. And that, that was most of his work. He wanted people to know how to be in that last empire, an empire with no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, and no more death. That was the great thing he longed for. That was why he wept over the city of Jerusalem, as we read. He wept over that city because he could see what was going to happen to its people. It broke his heart. You know, when we seek to answer that question, I want to take us back to the ancient city of Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar. We were there last evening at this place, and you'll recall Nebuchadnezzar was that great monarch of the ancient Babylonian empire. If you read the book of Daniel, who writes with such amazing accuracy, you will notice he gives a description throughout his book, really, it paints a picture of what Nebuchadnezzar was really like as we move through his book. You'll notice that Nebuchadnezzar was a very proud man. We could call him self-centered to the extreme and very arrogant. He was a man who had 
he, all he lived with, lived for, was material things. That was why he built and built and built and re-embellished the great city of Babylon. He was preoccupied with idolatry. In fact, he gave the name to Daniel of one of his pagan gods. He was everything into this sort of stuff, idolatrous. He was blasphemous. He went down to the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple of the Israelites belonging to their God, the God of heaven, and he took those objects from the temple and he put them in his own pagan temple back in Babylon as if to say, your gods are nothing. A very blasphemous man. He couldn't care less about the God of heaven. He was ruthless as well as we saw last evening, willing to take the head off of his, off of his advisors because they couldn't tell him what he dreamt. This was the picture that we have of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, when you go to the ancient biblical records, we read an interesting story, a story which archaeology has, great, has some amazing evidence for, this story, as we'll see in a moment. The story is uh, of, a, of a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And again, dreams were important to the Babylonians, as you recall from yesterday. Now, you will find in the British Museum a tablet, 34113, which records what scholars believe to be Nebuchadnezzar's insanity, a period in his life when he seemed to have lost his mind. And that's exactly what Daniel talks about in his fourth chapter. Daniel writes that one day Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And uh, in this dream he dreamt of a huge tree. And uh, this tree that he dreamt of in that night filled the whole world, so to speak. And the birds of the whole world lived in its branches and the animals of the world lived underneath and the tree provided food for everybody. And uh, suddenly in the, in, the, in the middle of the vision a voice is heard from heaven which says, cut down the tree. And the tree is cut down and just a stump of the tree is left in the ground, ground and a band of iron is put around it and there it is left for seven years or seven times. And at that point Nebuchadnezzar wakes up in a cold sweat and he wants to know what does that mean? So he calls in his psychics, his advisors again, who couldn't deliver what it means and so eventually Daniel is called in. So Daniel stands before the king and just as he had done in the story we heard last night from the ancient city of Babylon, as he had outlined the rise and fall of nations and showed him what the dream meant, so now he tells him what this dream about this great tree means. He says, King, the tree represents you. You are the king of the world, so to speak, the, the Mediterranean world, the Mis Med Middle Eastern world. You're the great king. Everybody really gets sustenance from you because you're in control of everything. You've conquered all these nations, so they look to you in a sense because you're the over, you're the master. But you have got too big. It's got to your head. And king, when it says chop down the tree, it means for seven years you're going to lose your position as the emperor of Babylon. You are going to become crazy for seven years and you're going to live like an animal in the bush. He says, now, king, this is my suggestion. I hate to tell you this dream, but you asked me to tell you. Now, I, this is what I suggest. I suggest that you turn away from the wrong things that you've been doing. You haven't been a good man, king, so leave that stuff behind and start being kind and good to people. Now, imagine telling Nebuchadnezzar, a monarch, that. That's not a smart thing to do, you'd think. But Daniel knew he had a message to deliver, and so he delivered it. King, turn away from that and... Live the right way. Well, the king doesn't pay any attention. 
A year goes by, a whole year, and he's there looking out over his great city of Babylon. He's admiring, no doubt, the magnificent structures he's built. In fact, he cries out as he looks over it all, he says, Man, is not this great Babylon that I have built by my might and for my majesty? I, I, I. Sounds like Muhammad Ali, doesn't it? I am the greatest, he said. He got an ego as big as a football field, this guy, Nebuchadnezzar. And it's the moment he says these things, suddenly there's a voice. But you know, my friends, there's a tablet that indicates that what Daniel wrote in this fourth chapter is actually true. Because you can see in one of the tablets called the Nebuchadnezzar tablet here, it says, this is what Nebuchadnezzar said, the fortifications of Esagila and of Babylon I strengthened and established the name of my reign forever. This guy had planned for some big things for him, you see. And just as Daniel says, this is what the king was like, there we have it on a tablet. So for the next seven years, this man lived like an animal outside of the city of Babylon. He lost his position. In fact, medical people think he probably had one of two conditions. We call it lycanthropy, the wolf man syndrome, or boanthropy, the ox man syndrome, getting around mooing like a cow or something, you know, and acting like an animal. Now you can imagine, for s- seven years later, this king is groveling on the ground like an animal, and as he's there, he thought, At this time, at the end of the seven years, he thought, no doubt, of this discussion that he'd had eight years before with Daniel. When Daniel had said, King, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to lose your throne. You're going to live like an animal. And I can almost see Nebuchadnezzar saying, Aha, that's what that guy said eight years ago. And look at me today. I'm a nothing. I'm a nobody. My life is a mess. And he realized at that point that there was a God in heaven. And that message had come from that God through his prophet Daniel. And Daniel says at that point in his journey, he looked up as if to say, God help me, my life is a mess. And instantly, God responded. This man had not believed in God. This man had not cared about God, but God had cared about this man. That's why he allowed him to get into this situation so he would come to his senses and realize there was a God and that God really cared about him. And so immediately his mind came back to, into function and he was reinstated and became the king of Babylon once more. And that's what that tablet in the British Museum, scholars believe it's indicating this terrible period in his life where it seems he lost his mind. You know, what an amazing thing that this man's life was changed just by looking up. When he got right down, he said, God help me, and God stepped in and came to his rescue. And this man found a forever hope. Daniel is telling us in his book that this man will be in that last empire when Jesus the Christ comes in response to all that, at the end of all those signs, this man will be part of his last empire because he acknowledged God and said, God, take my life in your hands and control me. What an amazing story when you think about it. Absolutely incredible. Here's a guy that couldn't care less, but God cared about him. Now the prophecies we've seen this evening are incredible when you stop and think about it. 2,500 years ago, the prophet Daniel 
in outline form said, listen, in the time of the Babylonians, that's when he was given that amazing vision in chapter 8, a ram will come along, Medo-Persia, two horns because it's a dual empire. It will be defeated by a goat which represents Greece 200 years in the future. That goat has a big horn in between its eyes, the first king. That's Alexander the Great, and he's the one that finished off the Greeks, the Medo-Persians. Then there will be a divided Greek, Greece, and there was. We see it in history. Then after that, out of one of the four points of the compass will come a horn that will move to Israel and everywhere in the Middle Eastern world, and it will crucify or it will take down the prince of princes, it will destroy the temple, and it will destroy God's people. And it did. That's what the Romans did. Then when Jesus comes along, he tells about the destruction of Jerusalem in five great, clearly defined things that will happen, and they've all happened. And then he says, now this is what's going to happen down to the end, and we can see that very clearly today, that these things are taking place. Soon Jesus the Christ will come, and he will bring to, into, into being the last empire where there's no more war, there is no more death, there is no more sorrow, there's no more crying, there's no more of these things that, we, that take us down. Depression and disease and death and destruction, it will all finish in that last empire. I am so thankful that we have these incredible predictions that give us confidence that this book knows what's about to happen and gives us hope for the future. You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM. Faith FM.